Hi, it's Ilya. Just a quick warning that this episode contains references to suicide and descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. Last time on Will Be Wild. I was like, I can't call the police. I mean, they're going to come here and do what? They're going to do nothing. So I was just like, the FBI. I mean, you can send in tips to the FBI. I mean, almost everyone knows that. Understand that it's not the state and locals' responsibility to check on the federal government and make sure they got their act together. You know, I always say that if I could do it again, I would have taken my kids. Because it would have just been a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for them to be a part of something that was historic. And I wish I could have shared that with my kids. We still don't know what happened. It's alarming because the threat is still out there. And when the threat materializes the next time, and it will, it probably won't materialize in a very heavily guarded Capitol building. It will probably materialize in a way that we haven't seen before, and it's concerning. I had just bought a desk on Craigslist and was just driving home past the state house and saw it. There were clearly two demonstrations. There was, like, the Biden one demonstration and also the Trump one demonstration. And the news had just broken that the networks were calling the election for Biden. So, obviously, it's pretty strange to see two clashing victory rallies. Saturday, November 7th, was technically Jake Zuckerman's day off. But Jake, who covers politics for the Ohio Capitol Journal in Columbus isn't the kind of reporter who's going to see a scene like this and drive on by. I mean, I've just never encountered anything like that. So I went home and I dropped my desk off and, you know, you just got to go check something weird like that out. In between the two opposed rallies, there are three people in fatigues. They're wearing bulletproof vests, pistols and holsters. At first glance, they look like maybe National Guard. At second glance, he realizes some of their weapons are paintball guns. What on earth are these people doing in, you know, dressed up like they're going to invade Normandy at a political demonstration at the state house? I asked, you know, why are you bringing guns to this rally? I asked if they'd give me their names, which they wouldn't. But one of the three was willing to talk. A woman with glasses and brown hair pulled back in a loose bun. She was cordial. She was respectful. She called me sir throughout, and she always came back to the line, and it really stuck with me is that, you know, we are here to protect people. And you hear something like that, and I'm protect which people and protect them from what? And that was never really answered. Hey, brother, we're boots on the ground here. We're moving on to Capitol now. I'll give you a boots on the ground update here in a few. Two months later, on January 6th, 2021, That same woman Jake met in Columbus is in D.C. Amid the heaving crowd of rioters, she's moving up the east steps of the Capitol with about a dozen others in stack formation, hand on shoulder, in a line. They pass through the crowd like a snake in the grass. We have a good group. We got about 30, 40 of us. We're sticking together and sticking to the plan. We'll see you soon, Jess. Airborne. After that, brother. Godspeed and fair winds to us. Her name is Jessica Watkins, and she is now a central figure in an 11-person federal indictment. Y'all, we're one block away from the Capitol now. I'm probably going to go silent when I get there because I'm going to be a little busy. We are in the mezzanine. We are in the main dome right now. We are rocking it. 
If we think of the more than 700 defendants charged in connection with January 6th as a pyramid, the biggest group is at the base. Hundreds of people who are facing low-level charges, like entering restricted grounds or disorderly conduct. They're throwing grenades, they're freaking shooting people with paintballs, but we're in here. The next layer up is smaller and more dangerous. People accused of breaking things, attacking police, or bringing weapons. One level above that are conspirators. There are only a few dozen of them. Groups of rioters acting in concert, according to a plan. Jess, pull as much intel as you can, keep up with everything. Jessica is part of a group that's one level higher still. They're charged with seditious conspiracy for their alleged plan to oppose the lawful transfer of presidential power by force. Watkins and 10 others are the first to face this charge in years. If convicted, they could serve up to 20 years behind bars. She has pled not guilty. Of all the rioters accused of committing a crime on January 6th, about one in seven has some kind of background in military or law enforcement. Men and women who swore an oath to uphold the law, protect the country, protect democracy. Jessica Watkins served for nearly three years in the Army. Her co-defendants include a former lieutenant commander in the Navy and an ex-Marine. There's a threat that has been growing in the United States for years that military veterans are being radicalized by right-wing extremists to use their training against other Americans. And for years, civil servants have been trying to call attention to that threat, sometimes putting their own careers at risk in the process. But anyone paying close attention will tell you they believe we have no choice but to engage with the threat. This isn't going away, and the future of the country is at stake. From Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music, this is Will Be Wild. My name is Ilya Meritz. Chapter 2, Boots on the Ground. While we were reporting this story, people kept telling us that the failures of the government to fight right-wing extremism could be traced back to this one guy, a guy who tried to do something about domestic terrorism but was stopped in his tracks. My name is Daryl Johnson, and I'm the former lead analyst for domestic terrorism at the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. I met Daryl Johnson at a restaurant he likes in suburban Maryland. He greeted me with a fist bump and a gesture to follow him to the table. Johnson has a no-fucks-to-give vibe. In over two hours we spent together, he never once removed his reflective blue wraparound sunglasses. When Johnson started at the Department of Homeland Security in 2004, the agency was still young, and his section, which covered domestic terrorism, was kind of an afterthought. He had a chair, but no desk. One of the uh, assistants took me downstairs where there was all this old furniture left over from the Navy that had previously occupied this building, and he took a screwdriver and we unscrewed a portion of an executive desk and we hauled that up three flights of stairs and he plopped that next to a window and dropped a phone line out of the ceiling tiles and said, there's your desk. Johnson was part of a division within DHS called Intelligence and Analysis. We're going to talk more about INA in this series, but for now, what you need to know is that they look out for emerging threats. He says, in the beginning, there was only one person focused on Americans planning to attack other Americans inside the United States. It was him. I don't know, three, four hundred people working there at the time. And I was the lone ranger. 
Uh, and in fact, they brought me in. Wait, sorry, 300, 400 people working at DHS and one of them working on domestic terrorism? Right, just in the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Okay, so we had entire divisions devoted to looking at al-Qaeda threats. Daryl Johnson, meanwhile, is looking at homegrown radicals. In early 2007, he gets a call from the U.S. Capitol Police. Basically tipping us off that a black senator from Illinois was going to be announcing his bid for the presidency. They want Daryl Johnson to take a look at what people are saying on extremist websites. He starts digging into the hateful rhetoric about Barack Obama that's popping up around the internet. And what he sees is alarming, but also kind of invigorating. Extremists have that effect on Johnson. I was just kind of drawn to that naturally, you know, that there'd be these psychos in my own community. He grew up in rural Virginia, and from a young age, he had a morbid fascination with a certain kind of forbidden thought. He remembers seeing the letters KKK scrawled in a bathroom and asking his parents what it meant. Or there was that time some boys told him about a compound where a conspiracy-minded political group trained with machine guns. Although he's not a believer anymore, Daryl Johnson was raised Mormon. And in the early 90s, he reached the age when young men are expected to do missionary work. And he's sent to Michigan. I would bump into people as I was going door to door proselytizing uh, that adhered to anti-government conspiracy theories. I would find neo-Nazi leaflets on doors that I was knocking on and I would take those leaflets and read them. The state has a rich history of anti-government movements. The Oklahoma City bombers, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, attended meetings of the Michigan militia around the same time Johnson was there. They met in basic training in the Army. You know, out of all the places to send me in the world, Michigan was the best place to prepare me for my career in domestic terrorism. A little over a decade later, Daryl Johnson is where he wants to be. He's an analyst at DHS studying potential threats of domestic terrorism. Barack Obama has just been elected president. Unemployment is soaring as a result of the financial crisis. And all the arrows Johnson sees are pointed in one direction. This is a real problem, and it's only getting bigger. He distills a year's worth of research into a report that's quietly released to other government agencies. The report is only 10 pages long, but it will end up costing him his career in government. So the title is Right-Wing Extremism, Current Economic and Political Climate Fueling Resurgence and Radicalization and Recruitment. And our food is here, of course, right on cue. The writing is dry. The facts are troubling. Johnson writes that possible gun control measures and the election of the first black president could be the spur for new anti-government radical activity. And he has a particular warning about service members coming home from America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Here's what he wrote. Returning veterans possess combat skills and experience that are attractive to right-wing extremists. DHS INA is concerned that right-wing extremists will attempt to recruit and radicalize returning veterans in order to boost their violent capabilities. That pretty neatly describes what happened with Jessica Watkins and the Oath Keepers. The group was founded one month before Johnson's research was released. The report is intended only for the eyes of other agencies and law enforcement. And at first, Daryl Johnson says, he gets good feedback. Like, really good feedback. Police groups want him to come and speak. DHS has plans to grow its extremism and radicalization branch. We were in the process of actually staffing up 
the number of analysts in anticipation of this rising threat that was going to emerge. The weekend after he delivers the report, Daryl Johnson is out with the Boy Scout troop where he volunteers. And I was out with a van full of Boy Scouts delivering mulch and happened to have the radio on to the local rock station. And uh, at noon hour, they had a, just a quick soundbite of, you know, the main headlines for the day. Like the second or third story was, you know, Homeland Security issues this report warning us about right-wing extremists. And I just, it was like very surreal. I was like, is that the report that I just wrote? How do they know about that? And why are they talking about it? In no time, Daryl Johnson's no-nonsense report makes the leap from minor news item to glowing ball of radioactivity. These people are now being stigmatized as terrorists. This is an outrage. Well, Pat Robertson gave that to all of his followers and said anybody that's upset about this report needs to call this operations center and voice your objection to it. Pat Robertson is a famous televangelist, by the way. And I want you to call a number. This is the Department of Homeland Security. Get on the phone and call them. And just say you- when I got in the office Monday morning, you know, the conservative media had picked up on it on Saturday and Sunday. And so it was like utter chaos. Now Johnson sees how naive he was. That term, right-wing extremism, is like a lightning rod. Republicans in Congress speculate that it could be used as a pretext to spy on anti-abortion activists or people who oppose immigration. Then, of course, there's the military part. So at the very end of the report on page 7, there is a subtitle called Disgruntled Military Veterans. And in hindsight, I realize how that term could come across as offensive uh, to some people because it's sounding like these military veterans are coming home and actively seeking out membership in these extremist groups. He says he'd use different language today, but he wouldn't change the conclusion. Before it was released, this report had been vetted. Johnson says it went through 23 rounds of edits. Then Johnson got FaceTime with the head of the agency. A big deal. I know Janet Napolitano initially was very pleased with it. The secretary. Yep, Secretary Napolitano. I was there, gave her a desk-side briefing along with my supervisors. But the issue was no longer about policy. It was now about politics. The Secretary of Homeland Security goes on Fox and Friends and apologizes, saying... The last thing we want to do is to offend or castigate all veterans. The consequences are far-reaching. First, DHS cancels plans to talk with the nation's law enforcement agencies about rising domestic extremism. We had numerous speaking engagements and trainings that were already on the schedule and approved that we had to pull off the calendar. Then the agency goes one step further and disbands Daryl Johnson's team altogether. They ultimately converted us over to looking at al-Qaeda and infrastructure threats, uh, which you could see would be very humiliating when you built up an expertise and a reputation on domestic terrorism. The following year, Daryl Johnson leaves the Department of Homeland Security to run his own consulting business. Now as an outsider... Johnson watches as white supremacist and anti-government attacks add up year by year, just as he had feared. Then something happens that he didn't anticipate. Donald Trump is elected president. That administration 
mainstreamed some of these extremist narratives that I had saw on KKK message boards and neo-Nazi websites, building a wall on the southwest border, banning Muslims from traveling into the country, mass deportation of Latino immigrants. Extremists felt heard. This was the first time in all the trending that I've looked at that these right-wing extremist groups thrived under a Republican administration. Typically, they go down in numbers because, you know, they're not fearful of minority rights being expanded. They're not fearful of their guns being restricted, uh, things like that. By the time Johnson turns on his TV on January 6th, the riot is already in full swing. He sees don't tread on me flags hoisted high in the halls of Congress. All these things, the symbology and everything that I had studied and worked, you know, following these extremists, were being displayed by all these people that looked like they'd overrun the Capitol. And he thought to himself, what if my report had landed the way it was intended, as a sober piece of analysis and a warning to the government? So this threat literally came not only to their doorstep, but into their workplace. This is a serious and growing threat. We'll be back after a short break. If you had to describe Jessica Watkins' state of mind after leaving the military, the right word was right there in Daryl Johnson's report, disgruntled. Watkins enlisted in the army back in 2001, right out of high school, and was deployed to eastern Afghanistan as part of Operation Enduring Freedom. She served almost three years, before being forced out in 2003, she says, because of the military's don't-ask-don't-tell policy on sexual orientation. After leaving the army, Watkins changed her name to Jessica and began living as a woman. There's not much out there about her life at this point— But our producer, Alice Wilder, has been corresponding with Jessica while she awaits trial in a D.C. jail. Alice also found an online journal that appears to be Jessica's that was written between 2007 and 2009. A quick word about this journal. Jessica has offered varying responses about whether she is the author, but no flat denial. Many details line up with confirmed facts about Jessica's life, where she was living and working, An ex-girlfriend who's mentioned in the journal confirmed to us that they knew each other. And there are lots of personal photos of someone who looks unmistakably like Jessica. The About Me section of the journal says, I am a combat veteran with the U.S. Army, and I regret it. I am proud to have served my country, but ashamed in the way that it was accomplished. A lot of Americans had soured on foreign wars by then, But the writer of the journal had soured on life itself. Not a lot is going well for her in those years. She has no relationship with her parents. She struggles to keep a job. Money's tight, and she can't afford the hormones or gender confirmation surgery she desperately wants. After a close friend dies in combat, Jessica says she attempted suicide. The journal entries from this time are filled with descriptions of actual self-harm and fantasies of harming others. One entry says, I know I'm fucked up in the head and getting progressively worse as time goes on. Just Sunday, I punched 10 to 15 holes in the wall, fractured my hand, and beat my head until I passed out. 
In another, she imagines attacking a group of black teenagers, she calls them the N-word, with frozen paintballs, which she notes can be lethal. In 2010, Jessica moves to Fayetteville, North Carolina, looking for a new start. She finds a job as a firefighter EMT, saving lives, helping people. After a few years, she moves back to Ohio, to her old hometown, and Jessica's life seems to really turn around, in part because of a card game called Magic the Gathering. It involves wizards and spells. Jessica played it a ton while she was in the military, and one day in Ohio, she finds a local card shop where people get together and play. One of them is a guy with a goatee named Montana. Jessica says that after a few sessions of magic, he works up the nerve to ask for her number. They hang out, play some more. Soon they're getting together three or four times a week. According to Jessica, Montana didn't know she was trans. When she told him, he decided he didn't care. They move in together and buy a bar, the Jolly Roger, and has a pirate theme. They work together every day, side by side, talk about getting married. One of the largest cities in Ohio was struck by back-to-back twisters. First responders are currently performing search and rescue operations. Some people are comparing the damage to a war zone. That's what it looks like. So much devastation there right now. In 2019, tornadoes hit Dayton, Ohio, not far from where Jessica and Montana live. Jessica puts together a group to do relief work. But what starts out as distributing water and supplies becomes something else. Jessica calls her group the Ohio State Regular Militia. The members call Watkins Cap, like Captain. When BLM protests break out in the summer of 2020, they show up at local rallies, patrolling the streets in military gear, with guns. They become part of the network of anti-government militias known as the Oath Keepers. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States, winning the White House and denying President Trump a second term. Jessica is devastated when Joe Biden is elected president. She wants to do something about it. She sends a series of texts to potential recruits to her militia. If Biden gets this deal, none of us have a chance in my mind. We already have our neck in the noose, she writes. She urges them to attend a basic training run by a Marine drill sergeant. I need you fighting fit by inauguration, she says. In another message, she says, our way of life as we know it is over. It is our duty as Americans to fight, kill, and die for our rights. You know, when I drive around different cities, uh, see the number of tactical training places, you know, come and learn tactics. This is Eric Jackson, a former senior FBI executive who specialized in domestic terrorism. My question was always, I know why I did tactical training, because my job is to protect the citizens. Why are you doing tactical training? And what is the end purpose of that tactical training? Jackson was a black man in an agency that is still largely white. He's tall, with impressive biceps poking out from his Bruce Lee t-shirt. The kind of guy who calls you by your name and looks you in the eye. I went to talk with Jackson because he led a successful operation that interrupted a domestic terror plot. It seemed to me that investigation could have been a blueprint for how law enforcement approached January 6th. Instead, Jackson was out of the government, and that day he watched from home as the chaos unfolded on TV. 
Jackson's investigation started in 2015 when a tip came into the FBI about ISIS looking to recruit new members in Garden City on the high plains of western Kansas. But when agents started asking around, they didn't find jihadis. What they found was white supremacists, a small group calling themselves the Crusaders. Set it up on a mosque and then drive half mile and set it off. Yeah, exactly. Put a cell phone yeah. on it and fucking call a cell phone and bam. What you're hearing was recorded by an informant wearing a wire. Where I could throw a fucking RPG right into a goddamn mosque and blow the fucking whole side of that motherfucker off. These men were spitballing ideas for staging a violent attack on a local community of Somali immigrants. Eric Jackson oversaw the investigation as FBI special agent in charge in Kansas City. And I remember as the head of our office meeting with my staff and telling them we will not have a repeat of Oklahoma City. These individuals will not conduct an attack. We are going to stop them. Oklahoma City is personal for him. He visited not long after the 1995 bombing and saw the devastation there. It's part of why he became an FBI agent. His investigation in Kansas played out against the backdrop of the 2016 presidential race between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. While Trump took to the debate stage to talk about a Muslim ban, the Crusaders met in secret to talk about building a bomb. You could make explosives out of it. How do you think fucking McVeigh got caught? That was all fertilizer. They decided to detonate it after Election Day. They were cognizant of not doing their terrorist attack uh, or doing something that would put uh, Hillary Clinton into the White House. Over 100 people could have been killed if the Crusaders had succeeded in their plan. Today, all three plotters are in prison. The surveillance operation was tense and complex. But Jackson says that interrupting domestic terrorism starts with something simple. One of the things that I learned in my FBI career, and it's so important, is listening. Not always waiting to see actions, but listening to what people are saying. That kind of listening wasn't just the key to stopping this attack, Jackson says. It's the key to all law enforcement work. And it doesn't have to be a confidential wiretap. Jackson listens in other places, too. Like when he goes to gun ranges for target practice. I can tell who is a a novice shooter, because that's the person who comes in and just cranks off rounds. They're not looking to hit anything. They just want to crank. And, you know, unless I had my FBI badge on, I could just stand there and listen. And I would hear people talk about their hatred and how much they hate, how much they hated President Obama, how much they hated the liberals and, and this. And so that's what I've been worried about for years, that that violent rhetoric was going to come to a conclusion before you have people saying, stop talking about it and do something about it. After the Crusaders case, Jackson becomes FBI chief in a bigger city, his hometown of Dallas. His sense of mission has never been higher, and his experience has never seemed more necessary. Every year brings more extremist attacks, a vehicle ramming into a crowd in Manhattan, a shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Over and over, the kind of hatred he heard at the gun range was turning from talk into action. But his awareness of a growing white supremacist threat runs straight into something else he's noticing, a bureau that has become overtly political and influenced by the president. This wasn't the FBI that I had joined, and I I had never seen that before. 
I remember a meeting where one of my white colleagues said, uh, you know it's going to be better for your community under President Trump. After steadily advancing in his career year after year, Jackson suddenly feels like he's going nowhere. First, he's passed over for a promotion. Then he's nominated for a big award and feels insulted when it goes to someone less accomplished. Jackson is well aware that politics has a way of flaring up, disrupting the work of government. He watched what happened with Daryl Johnson's report. Nothing in that report was a surprise. Absolutely nothing. I thought it was a well-written, well-sourced document. But uh, I saw something that really bothered me, and it was the way that it was politicized. Eric Jackson is actually the one who pointed me toward the report in the first place. And one of the things that I thought was a very chilling effect, and I would say that that chilling effect still existed probably till January the 6th, is people worrying about what they're putting out because it may become political fodder. With no prospects and no room to maneuver, Jackson makes the decision to leave the Bureau in the spring of 2019. He's two and a half years away from mandatory retirement. I think in this environment right now, it's not uh, the FBI that I remembered. And I wanted to leave on my, on my time instead of uh, leaving on anything else happening. We asked the FBI for comment on Eric Jackson's experience. The Bureau did not respond. His resignation was a lot less dramatic than Daryl Johnson's flame-out a decade before. But there were similarities. Both men sensed what was coming. Both tried to make a difference. Both concluded they couldn't, and so they both left. Their resignations had real consequences. Because as people like Jackson and Johnson departed government, they left gaps in expertise and skills. And the people around them who stayed could draw their own lessons from how they'd been stymied. The work itself of recognizing threats and foiling plots had become an occupational hazard. Meanwhile, groups like the Oath Keepers grew and made plans. And on January 6th, clad in camo and dripping tactical gear, they entered the Capitol. Since being charged for her participation in the Capitol riot, Jessica Watkins has said she's no longer affiliated with the Oath Keepers. In a hearing, she told the court she regrets joining the group. We're done with that lifestyle, she said. I did it out of the love of my country, but I think it's time to let all of that go. Watkins is detained pending trial. When Joe Biden took office, his Department of Defense quickly took steps to confront radicalization in the military, engaging with the issue that tanked Daryl Johnson's career. The Pentagon did a big review of extremist activity among active duty service members, and it's working to curb the recruitment of veterans by militias. But what happens when radicalization isn't only happening in online forums, when instead it's being driven by the White House? That's next time on Will Be Wild. Donald Trump saw DHS as useful for only one thing, and that is very, very strict immigration policies. Put simply, since taking office, President Trump has decimated the leadership ranks of his own Department of Homeland Security. This chaos appears to be by design. It's exactly like The Apprentice. Did you ever ever watch The Apprentice? It's exactly like The Apprentice, except in this case, 
you know, American lives are on the line. We're not saying we think that when the president speaks, people do violent things. We're saying the evidence shows that it happens. Will Be Wild is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's hosted by me, Ilya Meritz, and Andrea Bernstein. Our senior producer is Kat Aaron. Our producer reporters are Christine Driscoll and Alice Wilder. The associate producer is Marie-Alexa Kavanaugh. The editors are Maddie Sprunkheiser and Joel Lovell. Production assistance on this episode from Annie Brown. Fact-checking by Jane Drinkard. Our sound designer is Hannes Brown, who also composed the original music. Pineapple's head of engineering is Raj Makicha. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Legal review also provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown and Sarah Schwarzman at Donaldson Califf Perez. Jenna Weiss Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. For Amazon Music and Wondery, the senior producer is Eliza Mills, and executive producers are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Special thanks this episode to Michael Lowinger of On the Media and Hampton Stahl of Militia Watch, Tom Amenta, Quill Lawrence, Capital Terrorists Exposers, Joe Plensler, The Mirror Project, and Stony Point Fire Rescue in Fayetteville, North Carolina. 